Hey, I'm Noble. Thanks for checking out the message today. I'm so thankful that you're here and we would love to connect with you. An easy way to do that is you can text River Connect one word to 97000. You can also go through our website and find out more about us and see what we have coming up. Lastly, if you'd like to give to the River Church, you can text an amount to 84321 or you can go to the giving tab at the top of the page. I just want to thank you for being with us today and I hope you have a great rest of your day. Bye now. We are not opening to Revelation today. I enjoyed it this summer. Let's grab a Bible. Let's open them up to the book of Colossians. The book of Colossians there in the New Testament If you want to open to also the book of Philemon, you get extra credit. But it's great to see you. If you're a guest, I want to welcome you. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, I want to encourage you. You could share with someone sitting next to you. Or you can take out your phone. You can download a Bible app or the River Church app. And there's a Bible feature on there. But I want to encourage you to be following along, seeing the Scripture uh, for yourself. Uh, Over the month of September, so right after uh, Labor Day, we're going to be doing kind of a mini-series in the book of Colossians. And so I want to encourage you over the next few weeks, and so here's just kind of a bit of a homework assignment. And by the way, I hated homework, so even saying that, I'm upset at myself right now. Um, But here is an assignment for the next few weeks. Uh, Read the book of Colossians. Uh, every single day. It'll take you just a handful of minutes uh, to sit down and read the book of Colossians. It's not very long. It shouldn't take you very long at all, but I will almost guarantee you that if you read it every single day over the next, let's say, 30 days or till the end of September, that the Lord will begin to illuminate some things in your life. You'll begin to make some connections with what's going on in the book and to understand Uh, the Apostle Paul who's writing there and the letter and some of the circumstances happening in that church and in that city. And uh, and certainly the Holy Spirit will speak to your heart and your life and challenge you. So I want to encourage you to do that uh, over the next uh, few weeks. Let's look at Colossians chapter number two, and we're going to pick up in verse number six. Scripture says this, therefore... As you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. So this is a letter. When we get to some of these things, sometimes these books in the New Testament, we call them epistles. It just means a letter. And this is a letter written by the Apostle Paul, and he is writing to the church in the city of Colossae. And so they're called the Colossians. And he is writing to them a letter. What's interesting about this letter, there's several things, but one of the things that's interesting about this letter, at least to me, is that Paul, at this point, had never seen these people face to face. He had never met them. They, of course, had heard about the Apostle Paul, but Paul had never been to their town. Paul had never preached at their church. Paul had never shared a meal with them. And so they knew Paul really in name only, and the same for the Apostle Paul. 
But somehow they had come to know Jesus. And I want to show you kind of these pieces together so you can put together their story a little bit. Jump back to chapter 1 there. Chapter 1 in verse number 7. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 7. Paul says, Just as you learned it from Epaphras. So he's talking about the gospel. So you heard this from a guy named Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He's a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the spirit. Now you can hold your spot in Colossians. If you went over to Philemon, great. If not, that's okay. But Philemon is a small little letter written to a guy named Philemon. So Paul writes this really short letter to this man named Philemon, who is part of the church in Colossae. So he says this, he says, Paul, verse 1 of Philemon, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother. So he lists a couple things there. And he says, I'm writing to you, and the church in your house. So the church in your house. So there are a group of believers that are known as the Colossians in Colossae. There are the believers there, and they heard the gospel because this guy named Epaphras came and shared the gospel with them, and their church started meeting in the home of this man named Philemon. Now hold your spot in Colossians still, and go back to the left to the book of Acts. And I want to show you there in the book of Acts how they came to know the Lord. Acts chapter number 19 and verse number 10. So whenever you're reading in the New Testament, especially with the epistles, who is writing, who they're writing to, and when they're writing is really important. Otherwise, there's no way to really understand what's going on. You're taking stabs in the dark at things. You don't want to do that. So we know that Paul is writing, and we know he's writing to the group of Christians in that town. We know a little bit about them, that they heard the gospel originally from Epaphras, who seems to be a pastor or a missionary or some sort of partner in the gospel effort with Paul. And they're meeting in this wealthier man, it seems, uh, named Philemon's home. That's where the church is meeting. Well, how did they originally hear about Christ in the first place? Acts chapter 19 and verse number 10. The Bible says this continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia, so that would be Asia Minor or modern day Turkey, what we know as the country of Turkey, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks, Jews and Greeks. So back to Colossians now. This city, Colossae, was about 80 miles east of Ephesus. So here's the pieces that we can put together. Epaphras and Philemon happened to be in Ephesus or traveled to Ephesus for some business or purpose or whatever it might be, and there they encountered the ministry that was going on for multiple years of the Apostle Paul. And he was preaching the gospel for the first time in that city, and people were coming to know the Lord. 
And so they were born again. They received Christ. They repented of their sins and believed in the teaching and person of Jesus Christ. They go back to their town and what do they do? They began to tell their friends and family. And people that received that message, they said, well, let's, uh, I don't know how this works. Uh, let's get together. And Philemon's like, you can meet at my house. And so they're like, oh, okay, let's go meet at Philemon's house. So what did they do? They began to gather there as we see the pattern of the church. They began to gather there and, and encourage one another and pray together and study the word of God together. It wasn't anything fancy. They didn't have a building or anything like that. They were just meeting in a guy's house. They were going around and they were sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. They were serving people. They were doing good deeds, all of those things. And the church there in Colossae was born. What's unique about this particular letter is that if you look at where it sits, uh, Galatia is a region. So that's, that's kind of a bunch of different churches, right? The book of Galatians. Ephesians was to the city of Ephesus, a pretty major city. Philippi was also a major city. Colossae was not. It was a small town. By the time that the Apostle Paul is writing this town's heyday had long been passed. It was a small town. One writer said it is the most unimportant town to which Paul ever wrote a letter. It was not an influential place, but it was a small town, and you have this group of people that Paul's never met, and that he writes them a letter. I want to show you why I think he wrote them the letter and we'll kind of dig into it. Hold your spot in Colossians. Oh, man, for better or for worse, let's go back to Revelation, everybody. <laughs> Revelation chapter number two. Now, you might have this in your Bible. You might not. When I was a kid, they provided great doodling, connect the dots uh, opportunities. But you might have maps in the back of your Bible. Or you might be in the 21st century, and you can just Google it. Okay. But uh, you might have a map there, and you can look and you can see that Colossae is near the city or a kind of a sister city of Laodicea. Now, Laodicea is mentioned in the book of Revelation, chapter number three. So we'll go there and we'll work our way backwards. Revelation chapter number three. So depending on where you date the, the writing of the book of Revelation, whether around 70 AD or I think it's around 96 AD, Paul's writing to the Colossian church around 30 years earlier. So they're in the middle of these different cities. And so we start to piece together knowing some things about those churches around them, some of what might have influenced or helped shape the church in uh, Colossae. So what do we know about the Laodicean church? Revelation chapter number three, in verse number 15, Jesus says, you are neither cold nor hot, you're lukewarm. You're, you're just, you're, your apathy makes me want to vomit, is what Jesus says there. Verse 16, I will spit you out of my mouth. He says, for you say, I'm rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. But Jesus says, you're, you don't realize that you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. So this was a church that was lukewarm. This is a church that made, the, the, made Jesus sick to his stomach. That's the big city right by Colossae. 
Now, what else do we know about the churches around them? Go back to Revelation chapter number 2. We see that in that region is another church named Pergamum, or in the city of Pergamum. In verse number 14, Jesus says this about them. I have a few things against you, and I'm, just, I'm picking out the negative here, uh, just so you know some of the negative influence that, that would be around them. There's certainly positive things as well. But verse 14, Jesus said, I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. So there was some false teaching that had uh, invaded the church at Pergamum. Look right prior, uh, excuse me, just after that, uh, the city of Thyatira. Uh, verse number 20. Jesus says to them, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual morality, to eat food sacrificed to uh, idols. You see, just prior to that, the church, uh, just before that in chapter 2, the church at Smyrna. So a nearby city to uh, Colossae. You see in verse number 9, Jesus said, I know your tribulation, your poverty, that you're enduring the slander of those that say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. And then, right there at the beginning of the chapter, chapter 2 and verse 2, this is the church at Ephesus. Again, you could call it the, the, the mothership, if you will. That would be the first church that seems to have launched all of these others. Jesus says, I know your works. Your toil, your patient endurance, how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. So all around, again, this is about 30 years after the writing, I think, of the book of Colossians, but there had already infiltrated false apostles, false prophetesses, all of these different doctrines and errors and so on. They were all around there. Now go back to the book of Colossians. So we see in chapter 2 that those errors, that false teaching, those distractions were already present in Colossae. They were taking some different shapes, some different forms. Look at chapter 2 in verse number 8. Paul says, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy or empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. So see, those things are set in contrast to the ways of the Lord. So you see philosophy had infiltrated a, a kind of an antichrist, if we can take a John word, antichrist philosophy. There were empty lies, so it looked like there was something there, but it was really smoke and mirrors. It was a shadow. It was empty. It was hollow. And it was based a lot around, you'll see this phrase there, human tradition. Jump down to verse number 16. Paul says, let... Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink 
or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. So what was happening there? There, there, There's more here. Uh, Look at verse number 18. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on ascentism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. These things are happening there. Look at verse 23. These human precepts and teachings, they indeed have the appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and ascentism and severity to the body, but they are no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So a form of weird legalism invaded the church. And it was, a, it was, it was a drawing people away from or distracting attention away from Jesus Christ. And so it was built around a few things. Fundamentally, it was built around human traditions, It involved things like don't eat certain types of foods, don't drink certain types of drinks. Hey, certain days, festivals, new moons, the Sabbath, those are important. It had a philosophy. There was a deceptive element to it, an empty deceit. There was the worship of angels that was involved in it. There were people that would go on babbling over and over and over again about miraculous, crazy visions that they had. All of these different things were happening there, and it was not according to Christ. And so Paul warns there, he says, don't let anyone delude you. Don't let anyone take you captive. Don't let anyone pass judgment on you, and don't let anyone disqualify you. So think about the story here with Paul. Paul travels on a missionary journey to Ephesus. He goes there and he spends multiple years there preaching. And somehow Epaphras, Philemon come, they hear the gospel, they go back to their town. And so Paul says at the very beginning of the letter, he says, man, we thank God when we have heard about you. Verse number nine, he says, so from the day we've heard. So somehow word got back to Paul You were preaching in Ephesus and something awesome happened. These people from another town were there. They heard the gospel. They went back to their town. They started a church. They started a meeting of Christians. And that had to just fill and warm the heart of Paul so much. Because here was God using his preaching in a fruitful way. The message of the gospel was spreading. It was awesome to be a part of. Well, then Paul starts to hear what? Yeah, the church, they really love the Lord They're committed to the gospel. They've been born again, but some things have started to really happen. There's these people that are coming in and they're they're, they're distracting people away from Christ. uh, Christ. Some people believe it was the Gnostics. So Gnostic is spelled G-N-O-S-T-I-C. It means, it's a Greek word, gnosis, meaning they were coming in and saying, hey, we have a secret knowledge or we have a higher knowledge than Christ. Or, yeah, you've learned the elementary. That's kind of why Paul calls it the elemental spirits. He's like, you've learned the elementary level. The Gnostics would come in and say, but we're going to teach you the higher level things. And so what they were doing is they were pulling people away from Christ. And what Paul says is they're deluding you. They're bringing you captive. They're disqualifying you. So let's go back to our text where we started at the very beginning. Chapter 2 and verse number 6. They know the circumstances there. And anytime you see in in the text the word therefore, figure out what came before that. 
So Paul says, you know what's going on. You, you've heard the gospel. We've been praying for you. Here's the things that we're enduring. You know the situation in Laodicea. We've heard about some things for you. Therefore, as you received Christ, like as you have received Christ, look at verse number seven. Just as you were taught, Epaphras came, he taught you the word of God. You don't have to turn it back in chapter one and verse number six. He says, the gospel has come to you and ever since the day that you heard it and understood, you've been fruitful with the gospel. So the question is, how did they receive Christ in Colossae? Look at, look at the passage. Therefore, as you received, here it is, Christ Jesus the Lord, the Lord. Now, over these, these weeks that we're going to look at Colossians, one of the things that you'll see is that Paul is going to declare Jesus as Lord of creation, so all of creation, and then Paul will declare Jesus as Lord of the church, Lord of his people. This is an idea that was central to the gospel message. Jesus is Lord. One of my favorite authors, uh, living authors, quoting one of my favorite authors who's deceased, Kent Hughes quotes Charles Spurgeon. And he says, Spurgeon says this, it is interesting to notice that the apostles preached the lordship of Christ. The word savior occurs only twice in the book of Acts. On the other hand, it is amazing to notice that the title Lord is mentioned 92 times. Lord Jesus is mentioned 13 times, and the Lord Jesus Christ is mentioned six times in the same book. Think about those numbers. Jesus mentioned as Savior, and He is Savior from our sin, is mentioned twice, but over a hundred times you'll see the idea of Lord, Lord Jesus, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's why. The gospel message is if you will confess Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Now, what does Lord mean? Lord means boss. Lord means owner. Lord means king. And so what you see in, in happening in Colossae is a distraction from Jesus. And so Paul says, hey, I know we haven't met face to face, but I love you and I care for you and I'm praying for you. And all throughout the book, he's going to declare the sovereignty. He's going to declare the excellence. He's going to declare the supremacy of Jesus. Jesus is Lord of creation. Jesus is Lord of the church. And it implies the question, is Jesus Lord of you? Meaning is Jesus king and master and owner because that's how you received Jesus, Paul says. As you received Christ Jesus the Lord. I mean, look, look at the book, Colossians chapter number one. Let's kind of just skim through the book here for a moment. Colossians chapter one in verse number three. Paul says, we always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Look at verse number 10. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Skip over to chapter number 3, verse number 18. You'll see, as is fitting in the Lord. Then you'll see children 
obey your parents, for this pleases the Lord. Over and over again, verse 20, obey, bond servants obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Verse 23, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord, knowing that from the Lord, here, here's in verse number 24, you are serving the Lord Christ. Chapter four and verse number seven, he is a faithful, this is speaking of a man named Tychicus. He is beloved brother, a faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. Down to verse number 17. Paul is advising this, I think, pastor in in Laodicea or maybe there in Colossae, but fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. So what's declared here? Jesus as Lord. In chapter one and verse number 18, go back there. Paul says, and he, meaning Christ, is the head of the body, the church. Verse number 24, chapter 1. He says, for the sake of his body, that is the church. Chapter 2 and verse number 10. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Verse number 19, that same chapter, chapter two. And not holding fast to the head, meaning the head being Christ or the Lord of his church. What are we seeing here? We're seeing the declaration of Jesus as Lord. And then the implied question, is Jesus Lord of you? Is he the head? I'm not trying to be graphic here or be silly here, but people can live if they have a hand hand amputated. Or they can live, God forbid, if they were to have a foot or a leg amputated. No one's living if they have to have their head amputated. Like That doesn't happen. No Christian is going to live a Christian life that's for real without the head, which is Christ. And what we see in the book of Colossians is a return to real Christianity. What it means to be a real follower of Jesus. You don't see in the Bible Jesus saying, hey, there's going to be like professional followers of me. And then there'll be some real dedicated followers of me. And then there'll be some, you know, uh, some casual followers of me, but we'll get all them to heaven at the end. No, Jesus said, if you're going to come and follow me, let a person deny himself and take up his cross and then follow me. So what's Paul saying? As you received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him. That's what it means to walk with the Lord. That's what it means to be, we see it there in verse 7, rooted and built up in him. That's what we see being established in the faith. I thought about it just as I was jotting down some things. Receiving Jesus today or becoming or being a Christian, I likened it to a few things. Uh, Some people, it's, it's the equivalent or the same as choosing a financial advisor or an insurance agent. 
Like, Jesus is my guy. He'll take care of me in the end. We'll be good. Or being a Christian or following Jesus is like joining a gym. You don't really like it, but it makes you feel better. I guess that's more of my thoughts about the gym than it is about Christianity. (laughs) Or following Jesus is like having an affection for a sports team. We'll wear their jersey, but we'll boo them if they don't do what we want them to do. Following Jesus is like subscribing to a YouTube channel. For a lot of people, being a Christian is inspiring but not transforming. Being a Christian is just, well, I'm not a Buddhist or I'm not a Muslim. Being a Christian is something we do in a lot of cases, not who we are. For a lot of people, being a Christian is no obligation, is no lordship. You're just a subscriber and, a temp- and just kind of a casual fan. Jesus has a lot of fair weather bandwagon fans. When things are going great, we're in. Things are going bad, we're out. None of what we talked about there, hear me, is real Christianity. None of it. This idea that the messages are inspiring, that Jesus is inspiring, but he's not transforming, that's not the gospel. That's why Paul says, therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him. Is Jesus commander of your life? Or is he just something you do once in a while? Or something or someone you check in with once in a while? I think there's a lot of people that sit in our church that like the idea of Jesus until the command of Jesus confronts what they want to do. Nobody in their right mind says, yeah, I would like to go to hell. I mean, as described in the Bible, it doesn't sound too bad. I'll just go to hell. So we want to... Jesus is salvation. But can we negotiate on the lordship part? Please hear me. What Paul is saying here and what the gospel message is saying is if Jesus is not your Lord, he is not your savior. Paul says there in verse 7, Colossians 2, he says, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith. I love what Kent Hughes says about this. He says, faith is considered to be a component of a balanced life. And he likens it to a charm bracelet. He says, it's another charm on the bracelet of one's well-being. Having faith means you're okay. But the truth is, faith has no intrinsic value in itself. It must derive its value from its object. A lot of people say, I have faith. Faith is kind of a a vanilla way of talking about things. Ah, I have my faith. You have your faith. Oh, that's their faith. Oh, that's wonderful. 
But as Hughes says there, faith has zero intrinsic value. Faith gets its value from the object it is directed at or built upon. What's Paul say? Go back to verse number six. As you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up where? In him and established in the faith. Faith in what? In Jesus Christ. The object of faith is not just some feeling or warm, fuzzy, you know, uh, moments we might have. Our faith is in Jesus Christ, that he came and he paid the penalty for sin, and that Jesus did, in fact, rise from the dead, and it's only through Jesus that we can be saved. It's only through Jesus that we can receive a pardon and forgiveness of our sins. And so our, the object of our faith is not just, I have faith, or I'm churchy, or I'm a Christian. My faith is in Jesus Christ, and in Jesus Christ alone. Look over at Colossians chapter 3 and verse 1. Paul says, if then, if then you have been raised with Christ, meaning if you, you've been born again, if you've had a new birth, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you've died, and your life is hidden with Christ. When Christ, here's real Christianity, everybody, who is your life. Is Christ our life? Or is he just our eternal insurance guy? As you receive Christ, Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him. Here's what I would say. So many of us have grown up in churches where the gospel, the real, pure gospel, is not faithfully proclaimed because it lays down a gauntlet. It says, are you with Christ or are you not with Christ? Well, yeah, I want to be with Christ. I don't want to go to hell. That sounds crazy. But I don't really want to be, yeah, I don't want to be told what to do. We come to Christ and we realize that we have died. All that we were has passed away. It's been buried with Christ. And our life, the scripture says there in Colossians 3.3, has been hidden with Christ in God. And when he appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So it's all about Christ. So what is the theme, as I was thinking about reading Colossians this week several times, what's the theme of the book of Colossians? What is it declaring for the church? It's saying, listen, Christ must be put in his rightful place. And his rightful place is Lord. The pithy saying that maybe you've heard before is, if Jesus is not Lord of all, he's not Lord at all. So what does it mean? We are constantly 
surrendering ourselves and our kingdoms and our desires and our wants and our needs and our resources, we're bringing them to the Lord. And we're saying, Lord, this is all yours. You, you bought it on the cross. I am yours and everything I have, everywhere I'm going in life, every energy, all that I have is yours. And my mind, that's what chapter three is saying, is fixed on you. When Christ is put in his rightful place, it does a whole lot of things. We'll look at them throughout the month of September. Just here's kind of just a sampling. When Christ is in his rightful place as Lord of our life, it protects against errors. All that we saw in chapter 2 with dietary restrictions and specific days and um, worshiping angels and visions and all those things, those were distractions away from Christ. In chapter 3, look at verse 5. Paul says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. And then it goes through what's earthly in us. Look at verse 12. It says, put on then as God's chosen ones. If Christ is in his rightful place on the throne of our lives, please hear me, it will protect us from error and it will control what we do and what we don't do. Whenever we rebel against God, and we all do, whenever we plunge into sin, I'm a very visual person. This is how I kind of have seen it in my life before. Whenever I decide, you know what, I'm going to do what I want to do, I have gone to the throne of my heart and I have said, Jesus, get off the throne. I'm putting myself there. And then I make a mess. And then I run away from the throne and go, Jesus, help me. You're back. Go back there. I need you there. And then when I want to do what I want to do, I'm like, you're out. I'm in. And it's crazy. I make another mess. You ever been in this cycle before? You look in the mirror and you're like, I'm a moron. And then you're like a, a week later, I'm still a moron. I just did the same thing. It's because we must submit daily to the lordship of Christ. He must remain securely seated on the throne of our lives. We must submit to him, and it controls what we put to death, what's earthly in us, and then what we put on. Look down at verse number 18. We looked at these before, but I want you to see them. If Jesus is in the right spot in our life, it will order the way our family operates. Not just a, we're going to tack on the wall, Jesus is the center of this house. Like I wonder how many homes Jesus is actually the center of that have Jesus is the center of this house on the wall. If Jesus is seated on the throne of our hearts and is Lord of our life. It will order the way we operate in our family. It will order the way that wives and husbands interact together. It will, uh, it will determine children and their obedience. It will determine how fathers interact with their children. Guess what? If Jesus is Lord of your life, tomorrow when you go to work, you will work differently. That's 
Just read 22. Bond servants obey in everything those that are your earthly masters. So this was a, a slave master paradigm. We don't live in that paradigm. We live in employee-employer paradigm. So it's, it's very easy to translate these principles. But o- obey your boss, not by way of eye service as people pleasers. So not to be ridiculous here, but this is be a good employee when the boss is there and when the boss is not there. Don't be a butt kisser. That's what the Bible's saying. But with sincerity of heart. Why? Fearing the Lord. So every Christian here ought to be the best employee in their shop, in their office, wherever you are. You ought to be the best employee there because why? I'm not just working for my boss. The Lord is, the, the Lord is seeing what I'm doing. The Lord is seeing when I'm a slacker. The Lord is seeing when I'm stealing. The Lord is seeing when I'm not uh, being respectful. The Lord is seeing that stuff. I fear the Lord. If the Lord is on the throne of our heart, as if we are walking in the way we have received Jesus and, and Christ Jesus is our Lord, it will protect against doctrinal error. It will destroy immorality in our life and begin to uh, put on the new, chosen, holy, beloved, compassionate hearts that we see in chapter 3, verse 12. It will transform our family. It will change our work life. We'll see this in the next couple weeks. It will change the way that we pray. All of it comes down to is Jesus in his rightful place. That's what it comes down to. You're a terrible employee because Jesus is not in the right place in your life. It deals with bosses. Let's, let's not leave those guys out. <laughs> Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Meaning what? Don't rip off your people because you're going to answer to God in heaven. So... You might be a bad boss because Jesus is, is not Lord of your life. Just start working through those different implications of, of bosses, being an employee, being an employer. How about being a dad? Maybe you're a crappy dad because the Lord isn't securely king of your heart. You are. You're king of the castle. Jesus is it. Maybe you're a high school or middle school student and you are just a nightmare at home. You don't obey your father and mother. Here's why. Because Jesus isn't Lord of your life. You are. Husbands, you don't love your wives. You love yourself. You objectify and use your wife because Jesus isn't Lord of your life. Wives, you won't submit to your husbands because you haven't first submitted to the Lord. So it all comes back to Chapter 2, verse 6. Have you received Christ Jesus the Lord? That's the gospel. 
because we need to receive the Lord because we need not just to be inspired by the Lord, but I need to be completely transformed by the Lord. I realized it this week. I was, you know, I, sometimes I get upset at different people, different circumstances, and I realized the person who is my greatest enemy and villain in life is me. Like I have a super villain that lives in my soul that I have to kill every day. I can't do that on my own. I need the Lord to do that. So what is the gospel? The gospel is good news. I run to Jesus and I say, Jesus, I am a wreck, but you are holy. I'm a disaster, but you are divine. Lord, I am so sinful and you are pure. Lord, I cannot save myself and you are the Savior. And so I run to you and I just throw myself at the, at the feet of Jesus and I say, you are my king and you are my master. And the Holy Spirit begins to transform my heart. If Jesus is just something we do on Sunday and we go say hi to, that's not the gospel, that's not Christianity, and that's why there's not the transformation the other six days of the week. So what does that mean? That means that some of you sitting here aren't really Christians. To say it as bluntly and as lovingly as possible, it means some of you are not saved. It means that some of you are sitting here, some of you watching online right now, are not on your way to heaven. You are on your way to hell because you have never repented of your sins and declared Jesus as Lord of your life. That's the gospel. Now, if you have declared that, know that you are in that fight with the flesh for the rest of your life, but Jesus came to destroy that and conquer that, and he will strengthen you to do that. And so what we continually do is as we receive Christ, we come back to that moment again, not to be resaved, but to repent of our sin and say, Lord, I have strayed again. I have put my job. I have put my kids. I have put my, uh, my, my hobbies. I have put uh, you know, sex. I have put this. I put that on the throne of my life, Lord. And I've been living for that. And I, and I have to throw that off the throne. And I have to put you back there. I repent of that, Lord. That's what it means to receive Jesus. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes.